Hi, and welcome to the Beyond Waste podcast, a podcast designed to help you understand the systematic impacts of waste and what you can do about it. My name is Chelsea, and I'll be your host. Last week, you heard from staff members Yushin and Alex, who had a hot take on Earth Day and how you could celebrate at home. This week, we have staff members Ianu and Jensen, who who discuss organizing then and now with guest appearances Greg and Erica. If you have questions about concepts discussed today, please reach out to us at info at postlandfill.org and visit our website, postlandfill.org. My name is Ianu Konyo. I use she, her pronouns. I work at PLAN, the Post Landfill Action Network, as the Director of Partnerships. Hey, everybody. I'm Jensen. I use they, them pronouns. I am the Director of Engagement with PLAN. Hi, folks. I'm Erica Thorne. I use she and her pronouns. I uh, work currently with a network of mostly national, slightly international network of trainers called Training for Change. We do a lot of training of trainers in movements where um, uh, training is really important. Uh, Greg Jenko, most of my friends actually call me GL, which is my initials. Hmm. Uh, Pronouns he, him, his. Uh, For me, what I'm working on right now is a equitable and sustainable personal care company that's democratizing affordable access to plastic-free refills of everyday products like body wash, tooth tablets, mouthwash, laundry detergent. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for taking your Friday afternoon to chat with us about organizing then and now. A lot of students in this time of COVID right now are really, you know, uh, discouraged. They had to leave school abruptly. Their whole life is, is changing. And, you know, we as plan are in the position to tap into a student network and say, hey, you know, we're here to support you. And in thinking of how to do that, we thought, you know, a really good way would be to, to re-energize folks in the history of organizing and re-energize folks in the fact that, you know, student organizing can look like a lot of different things. Just young people organizing can look like a lot of different things. You don't even have to necessarily be a student. And so we just want to take this conversation as a way to think about what, what has changed in the history of organizing, where have we gone, you know, what has improved, what hasn't improved, and, and, and kind of just get our, our audience um, riled up in this, in this difficult time. Yeah, such yeah. a great um, goal. Yeah. The first question is just like to describe your experience as an organizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what kind of organizer were you at, as a young person? Please go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I um, was born in 1954 in rural Iowa. <clears throat> I've been pretty much since I was 19 working in various social change movements, um, sometimes for pay and often not. Uh, now, now I do work for pay. Um, I was, uh, around 10 at the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and I would say that period of the 50s, let's see, the, the Supreme Court decision for Brown versus uh, the Board of, uh, Board of Education uh, was in 1954, which was the year I was born. And so again, I was a, I was a child uh, in, that, um, in that context. I'd say my actual possibility of activism began, um, and this is not necessarily the only time, but uh, interestingly, it was on Earth Day, 1970. We just had the 50th anniversary, April 22nd, and I remember having a, uh, being, I was a sophomore in high school, so 10th grade, and um, uh, we had a teach-in on the the yard of the school, and um, so it was 
you know, I don't remember a single thing about the content, except that we did have, we established a food co-op after that. And, uh, and I remember the beginning of recycling, you, you had to crush your cans and make sure they were washed out and stuff. So those things were all rooted around that time. A lot of the current climate justice movement uh, had beginnings right around then. I started my career actually uh, at the epicenter of capitalism in investment banking. Wow. Working for UBS, covering consumer and retail. And so I was not actually a very uh, active student organizer. Um, and it wasn't until after I graduated and started working that I started to really get involved in organizing. So I took a very opposite path. Um, you like dove into the belly of the beast and then said, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, some of my first organizing was around helping to take funds and empower students who fell out of the DOE lottery system in New York City to provide them with mentorship. After that, I started to get a little bit more interested in like political organizing. Um, I did some volunteer work for Cory Booker. And then one of my really first big initiatives was working within uh, medical marijuana. I don't, I don't typically work for larger organizations. Um, I try to work with young people directly and help to organize them um, in a very like micro sense. Um, and hopefully through that, they can also uh, expand their, their power and their influence in their communities. And then um, I started expanding my political interests and worked for Move On doing, uh, as a campaign manager in Ohio. And, and now I know I'm rambling, but uh, working in Generation Conscious, which is really at this core of environmental justice and racism. And for me is working at this intersection of how can we work within this existing system um, and at least try to empower as many people as possible while also bringing awareness to the rampant racism that's going on across the country as it pertains to where landfills are placed, waste incinerators are placed, how that affects disproportionately the health outcomes of those people. Yes, okay, come on. It, 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 you know, both of you have organized in so many different movements and it, it just touches upon like that whole concept of social justice and environmental justice being one and you can't really focus on just one thing, you know, because all these systems are so interconnected. So I love hearing that you were an investment banker that now, you know, it works in environmental justice, Greg. I love to hear, Erica, that, you know, you saw the black, the, the, the civil rights movement happening and that, you know, empowered you to then, what was it, was it like 10 years later, become um, activist and now, you know, talk, can you tell us actually a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah. yeah I can just sort of say, um, um, I, I did not go to college, but I, and I was of college age when a great deal of activism was happening. Um, uh, certainly the anti-Vietnam War uh, movement, which won. That's an example of winning. We did withdraw from Vietnam uh, uh, far sooner than we would have um, if Nixon had had his way. And um, after um, uh, Earth Day, I moved to Washington, D.C., and there was a lot of actually uh, uh, Marxist, socialist kind of uh, hardcore organizing going on there, and I was I was in there in that a, a little bit um, uh, tangentially. But I I really latched on to an organization, a nationwide network of nonviolent, radical nonviolent direct action folks. Uh, it was called Movement for a New Society. Um, there were living communities. Uh, it had started in West Philadelphia. Um, we, we generated uh, things that are sort of just 
normal now in organizing, like uh, participatory meetings, um, like um, having nonviolent direct action training be integral to our analysis, vision, and strategy. I consider the nuclear, the anti-nuclear power movement and the anti-nuclear weapons movements to be the radical precursors of the of what is now the climate movement. And I say that because at the at the at in that era of the mid 70s till the till the uh, late 80s, when we were having a lot of wins on both those fronts, um, there were you know Sierra Club was there you know um not not there at our <laughs> they weren't occupying the military bases they were you know doing their own thing um but you know those what we call the big greens now they were they were alive and uh preserving the wilderness and a couple sentences of background in terms of nuclear power uh by the time of nixon's uh first uh term in office he had a plan for 1000 nuclear power plants across the United States. That was going to be the main source of power. And of course, all the activists knew like this is this is insanity, you know? I mean it was it was an equivalent feeling insanity, I'd say, to now what the climate emergency is. Like you what? You have got to be kidding. So there were um, a number of very strong movements um, around those plants. Um, and uh, so they did stuff like surround the power plant with activists, you know, with like 3,000 activists were holding hands and linking hands around the, the power plant. Um, they definitely, they, I think the first action was chaining themselves to the chain link, link fence that surrounded the, um, the, the power plant site of nuclear plants. Um, uh, you know, hundreds of people arrested and so forth. And um, there's, I just have to share this one story from one of the folks. Uh, I wasn't, I, I wasn't uh, in any of those alliances because I, I was in the Midwest here. I was in uh, Minneapolis by then, but uh, a man named David Albert, part of the Movement for Society, he said, uh, so there was one of our folks, Yukio Aki, uh, uh, said that he was a Buddhist priest and that he needed to come into the jails where we're being held uh, to hold Buddhist services. And so that was allowed because it was something, uh, 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 you know, uh, religious. And so he said, and I have to bring in a whole box of Buddhist Bibles because, because we need that for these services. And so they let him in. And what it was, was a book called The Resource Manual for a Living Revolution, which was a toolkit of nonviolent direct action campaign strategies and stuff to do. So there in jail, everybody was like, you know, boning up on their nonviolent strategy and tactics, and they were strategizing. That's a lot what people were doing in jail. Um, uh, both in the civil rights movement and um, uh, and in this movement. Um, so uh, so so anyway, there those that's an, just an, an example, sort of a personal example of how people were converting things. Um, the other nuclear uh, power thing that I want to mention because it's really important and it's much downplayed in the in the history of things is that in Greenham Common in the UK, uh, not real far outside of London. Uh, a women's peace encampment was started. And these were the days when I am a cis woman. <clears throat> um, and this was the days when people like me were just fighting to have females recognized as human beings. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's difficult, I think, to describe what the atmosphere I grew up in, in rural Iowa, in terms of being a, a girl. Um, it was violent, it was dangerous, it was humiliating, and there was no future. Um, and that was just the norm. I and mean, that wasn't because we were in rural Iowa. That's, that was the situation for women. And of course, uh, 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 black women and uh, Latina, Latinas and um, indigenous women were having a whole, a whole different experience than us white women were having. Um, but I think a key thing to recognize is that, is that women's movements were crucial to uh, bringing down both nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And so the nuclear, the women's peace encampments were about, actually were about nuclear uh, uh, weapons. So, uh, uh, and they, they gathered those women through what was called a chain letter, which was actual post, post office. You know, you, you, you sent a letter to 10 people and asked those 10 people to send a letter to 10 more people. That's how they got 3000 people to surround this thing. Um, and um, so that's always, you know, it's always good to mention, I think, that uh, telephones and postal mail is how, how we did it. So these were Occupy movements. These were building up camps and, and creating whole, uh, whole living environments for children and women in the case of the women's encampments. Um, children and now I would say children and some of the women. Um, trans women were not um, recognized. And that's a huge betrayal that my generation made. But it was probably 25 years ago, something like that. And so numbers of us artists would, would go around to college campuses or to wherever and each do like a 10 minute piece on our, our identities uh, and then hold a workshop. And the, the reason I'm saying that is that I remember very distinctly, so I guess this was around 25 years ago, that where uh, uh, I was in the cafeteria line with some of the students that had uh, 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 been with us in the program and, um, and uh, I asked somebody, you know, what, the, what were they planning to do after college? And she, uh, she said, well, um, I'm gonna apply for some grants to um, organize, uh, organize young people around, around something. I don't remember the topic because the thing that, that struck me is the first thing that came out of her mouth was I'm gonna apply for grants to do xyz and that that's part of the the that shift that i'm talking about that um to to me at that age what organizing was was getting getting bodies together in a in a in a space and identifying what the if it was a coalition identifying what the uh what the common ground what was that we had in the coalition and then making a strategy to to reach a goal around that um, and stuff. So, um, so I, that signaled to me around that same time. I was I was hearing people who were about that young woman's age saying, "Yeah, well, I think nonprofits is one of the ways we can make the fundamental change." And I think I think we now now we've shifted again. That I think generally speaking, activists realize um, that uh, that they that they are limited. Uh, the nonprofit, as they're conceived of in advanced stage capitalism, are limited in the uh, amount of actual social change, you know, actual fomenting change that impacts people's lives all the way down the road um, can, uh, can, can have. Really appreciate it. And I see that perspective. I think that part of the reason nonprofits are seen as the answer a lot of the time is like, like you said, because we live in a, in a highly 
uh, I, I want to say like cutthroat environment, uh, in, in economic environment. I think it's, it's not a great use of our time to, to say which is better or which isn't, but it, it, we do need to be aware that, you know, grant writing and nonprofit work, it does take a lot of time for you to constantly go out and raise, the, raise money for your, for your initiatives, for your resources. And that takes away time from, from more proactive um, community organizing and action. Erica, yeah. can I ask you a question? No, yeah, please. How can we do this work effectively without compromising, but also still feeding ourselves? Right, right. Uh, so, so it's not a small question, right? Um, but in terms of comparing when I was uh, in my uh, 20s and 30s and 40s with people who are in their 20s now and who have gone to college, I mean, it's like really questionable whether going to college was a good idea when, if you came out with $60,000 of, of debt. And that was not the situation when, when I was growing up. But I think uh, in my analysis, what here we here we find ourselves in late stage late stage capitalism and that has meant that the only the only the only goal for corporations for the corporations that more and more determine every aspect of our lives the only goal is for them to make profits for the tiny number of people that are invested in them for the investment bankers Yes, right. <laughs> and, and they needed the investment bankers, right? Correct. Investment bankers are more pawns. It's really like the That's right. investors. The bankers, <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm yeah. just messing with you. Clearly, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I, I want you to know so we can more effectively, I think, progress in this conversation because the more knowledge you have or more full information we all have within each other's realms, the more progress we can make together. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so investment bankers and a whole lot of other people are the agents of the capitalism that is benefiting, as we know now so clearly from the Occupy movement, you know, the 0.01%. Um, yeah. Funding is the number one impediment and constraint today to, I think, to organizing. And I, I really want to impress upon people that philanthropy is not the answer. Better government. <laughs> better law answer. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we're doing with Generation Conscious, you know, the goal for us over time is to be able to equip cities like Chester, Pennsylvania, you know, which is 70% black, average household income is around $29,000, who has one of the most polluting landfills incinerators in the country, where four in 10 children have asthma, 69% increased rate of ovarian cancer, a 24% increased rate of lung cancer, when they're burning that plastic and that, those dioxins are, are released in the air, it's polluting the air, water, and soil quality up for these citizens. But they're not going to be able to do anything about it unless they get better lawyers to fight in the courts for better zoning laws to remove those landfills. So we want to eventually, over time, as part of our mission, use some of our resources to equip these cities, these low-income communities, with the lawyers to fight these zoning laws in the courts. Um, the other, other things I would like to say about the, uh, the difference of sort of then and now is, um, uh, it, well, is the internet. Um, so uh, I think what, with all the advantages of the internet, um, I'm going to say that I don't work on social media hard at all because I have not found myself effective on social media. Um, 
I, I can be effective, I think, online, but in that environment, I'm, I don't understand it as an ecosystem. Um, and so that's, that's a limitation I'm dealing with. Um, but um, I, do, I do think it's important. I think people know this, but I think we need to be organizing in such a way that people get to experience that clicking on something is not the same as having a campaign, working with human beings to reach a certain goal and either reaching it or not reaching it or in between and learning from the whole experience together. Yeah, interesting. Thank you um, for that kind of like nice succinct wrap up of that. Um, I really appreciate it and I see that perspective. I think the, the internet, um, it's such a double-edged sword because it's such an incredible tool that has really, really helped young people, you know, connect to each other, not just in their state, but globally. I mean, I have friends in China. Why do I have friends in China? Because I, you know, was able to find them on the internet. And I think it's, it's helping people to create those mass collections a lot faster. And it's giving people the access to create those movements a lot faster and a lot more broadly um, than I'm sure was the case when you said, what was it that like, they used to have what mail and they would send one mail to somebody else. I was just like, right. Well, it's right, chain, chain letters, they were called, so. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I, I scoff at the, even the thought of a, a letter. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's appropriate for right now, because a letter is not the most effective tool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally with you on the internet as a tool. I, mm -hmm. I want to see it used that way. Just to, to build on what Eric was saying about, or what we've been talking about in terms of utilizing the internet as a tool, I mean, it's, it's obviously in the opposite way, you know, the, with this militarized police that we have, I mean, there's so many more ways for them to track our movements and to take away power from them. And I think it's really important to be aware of that, use it intelligently, but not to, you know, maybe over communicate. You know, some of the wealthiest people in the world, they aren't on the internet. They're not, they meet in person. And I, I just think that if you want to bring everything full circle, you know, make sure that you're aware of everything and that you're not just closing your mind off. Um, and that we take as many lessons from, from other groups who have been successful, whether it's in our movement or not, um, and use it, utilizing those lessons to create greater change. Yeah. Um, I did have one more thing to add on the social media thread. Um, just thinking about this piece that I have personally seen a lot uh, because I, I find a lot of personal connectivity in social media. I find it to be very um, helpful, you know, if used um, uh, attentively and, and kind of like cultivating like what you see in, in like a productive way. Um, but I have seen a lot of organizers, especially organizers of color who are taking to social media who are um, experiencing a lot of shutdown or uh, like shadow banning. Um, their content is uh, basically hidden by, by platforms, especially if they're going to be talking about systems change or like dismantling capitalism or, you know, whatever have you. Um, so like throwing in that other piece of um, if you are into social media and you want to use that as an agent of your own change, um, thinking about uh, that you are allowed to take breaks and that you don't have to force yourself into a place of um, desensitizing yourself um, because there's so much content, you know, even if it's content that you want to be staying up to date with, it can be very cumbersome at times. Um, so just like 
leaving space for creators themselves and organizers, uh, virtual organizers, to, to take a step back and understand that rest is valid and okay. But I want to talk about divestment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why now is like a really opportune time, I think, to tackle divestment more so than ever before, uh, mm -hmm. simply because a number of factors. One, obviously, we just saw the University of Oxford uh, just say that they're going to diverse, uh, divest out uh, a fossil mm -hmm. But more specifically, you know, for the first time, obviously, oil has hit a negative price. So it's not profitable. But at the same time, universities now are going to have downward pressure on prices that they can charge university students. They're going to have downward pressure on their operating margins because they're going to have to invest more in safer procedures post-COVID to have students on campus or to invest more into virtual learning. And then on top of that, they're going to have more students who are going to opt out because students aren't going to want to pay 50K a year you know, to go to school, incur all that debt to do what? Graduate into uh, an economy that's contracting uh, where there is no job. So I would love, I mean, obviously, if, you know, students are listening to this. Now is now a greater time ever for you to build coalitions on campus together. Use your power because you are paying 50 grand a year as a customer, as a, as a customer and a client uh, to the school uh, and, and threaten to some degree uh, that you won't go back until they divest. And mm -hmm. who has to pay attention no matter how many of their board of directors or board members work for fossil fuel companies. Now they have the power more than ever before to do that. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I'm the one who was just talking about late stage capitalism. So what is, what talks, you know, money, money talks. And so the divestment movement that I'm most familiar with was the uh, anti-apartheid uh, movement, apartheid in South Africa. Um, that was another example of a win that, that happened because of the pressure and the mounting pressure. A lot of it happened because of student pressure at universities uh, for them to divest from any involvement with um, South Africa. Particularly college and university campus organizing has been the, the backbone of movements in the United States, I'd say from the mid 50s. And so, uh, and that's been true in Europe, it's been true in China, student organizers particularly at the college or university level, have really led a lot of movements. And, and you are in that position too, even with the horrors of the COVID-19 virus. And this is a tremendous opportunity for us. Just in my adult lifetime, this is it. This is the biggest window I have seen. The ways the government have messed up, the ways white supremacy are, is uh, just laid bare, not to mention capitalism and patriarchy. So I just encourage you, discouraging as all this is, and I know you've done your school year messed up and just all kinds of shit is coming down. And this is our time. The Beyond Waste podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We at Plan believe that while nobody can do everything, everybody can do something. And this is just one small thing we are doing during this time to help our community. If you like what you heard, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and send this to your friends. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're staying safe and home. Thank you.